You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Hey everyone, welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities, the show where Emily and I read the Bible and uh, try to talk about it. Um, it's a little more difficult for me <laughs> this week, as many of you may have heard. Um, I just got over a really bad cold, uh, so my voice is not quite here. And so basically, uh, if it sounds a little funny, I do apologize. It's a. Uh, <laughs> Funnier than normal. Yeah, exactly. So uh, I, I do still have a little bit of a cough, but I haven't had fever since, what is today's Friday? I haven't had it since Tuesday, so like three days now. Um, no fever, and I woke up feeling mostly like a human and not like <laughs> just a lump of goo that didn't want to move. Um, so that being said, I'm sure everyone loves the imagery there. Um, but that being I said, just... I, I did not get much prep done for this week's episode, so <laughs> I'm going to be trying to catch up as you're talking, and as a courtesy, I'm going to turn my mic off uh, unless I have something pertinent to say so that everyone doesn't hear me coughing in the background while you're trying to talk. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, we appreciate that. We really do. I appreciate that. Um, so, yeah, we've kind of had a... I don't know. It's just been one of those weeks where everything's kind of gone sideways, I think, from on both ends. But you think we'd be used to it by now. I mean, it's yeah. like, <laughs> this is just what happens. And so, but you tell yourself next week's going to be better. And then next week's just as weird, but in a different way. Yeah. So, yeah. And the, and the timing could not have been, I mean, it almost felt scripted uh, <laughs> because it was the last week of school. We, we had a graduation on the last night of school. Um, which typically we don't do um, because uh, it, that's just a bad idea because uh, the last <laughs> day of school is really busy. And, uh, but somehow uh, with the schedule, it, it did not, uh, it, it, we had a bit of an oversight. And so what we wound up doing was just running ourselves ragged. Mickey woke up sick with us on Friday. Uh, our last day of school was Thursday. She woke up with it the next day. Um, and then I've been tracking about three days behind her on it. Well, that's probably why you guys got sick is because y'all just had just run yourself and you're into the ground. I can always tell how busy you are by the number of phone calls I get. Yeah. So like if the number of phone <laughs> calls goes down, things are crazy at the school. It's just the way it is. So yes, yes. And uh, also what type of work I'm doing, whether or not I'm running uh, heavy equipment or I, you know, having to do stuff where I'm talking with a lot of people, um, mm -hmm. but the good news is I've got uh, some really good help for the summer, and I was able to uh, just text and make a couple phone calls with him to uh, <laughs> to keep things moving and, and moving forward. Uh, yeah, you know, <laughs> so hopefully uh, everything. I'm going to show up Monday, and everything's just going to look great. Like I would, like I never left. I, I want a job where I can text it in. <laughs> I, I don't get to very often, but I do have a very understanding boss. And, uh, no, you've when, got a great, yeah when, I, when, yeah, when I told him, uh, when I texted him to let him know that I was ill, uh, <laughs> he was like, don't worry about it. We got it. And, uh, <laughs> so 
yeah, I, I do have a great boss and he's very understanding and I, uh, but I do feel especially bad because we will be going on vacation soon and I hate taking sick days right before go on vacation but yeah when's the last time you take vacation though so that's true i we we have not done a whole lot of vacation or traveling so uh you know that's it is what it is but yeah we're getting geared up for the kiddos so we're gonna have them while y'all guys are gone so that should be fun so yeah uh, yeah a little wildness here on the obtuse manor so (laughs) anyway and we're we're trying to so we're trying to record ahead so there's not a break in the schedule a lot of that's going to depend on my energy level throughout the day and kind of what what all you can get done um but if there is a break in the recording it will happen after the travel's already over so you know (laughs) right (laughs) Uh, well you won't know when we're gone Okay, I'm very, so I'm very particular of- about that. I don't want people knowing when we're gone. I, well, I assume if you're listening to this, you're not the kind of person who's going to come take my stuff while I'm away. <laughs> no, no, I don't think any of our listeners would do that. Um, you know, we seem to have pretty great listeners, so. <laughs> right. But, well, with all of that, I guess we could get down to business because um, we're still in First Kings. Uh, I say still. We've only been in here a few weeks. Um, I feel like it's been a lot longer because I've been doing a lot of research. It's a really great story. And I think one of the main things we're going to see a difference is between Kings and Samuel is, uh, you know, Samuel was so focused on David and Saul and, you know, all the events of saying of the monarchy. And now we're just going to go through this kind of this rapid fire progression. I say rapid fire with us. It's going to take forever because that's the way we roll. But uh, this rapid fire progression of kings yeah. and how they how they conducted themselves. Were they kings like David or are they going to be evil kings like Jeroboam? And so we're going to have um, this kind of this build up to the exile, which the exile is really what sets the stage for what happens before Jesus is born. So this is all really important and it's going to really inform how we read the New Testament when we get there. And so. We ended last week, we were talking about was Solomon really chosen or had Nathan and Bathsheba done some kind of gaslighting to, you know, this weak, frail David who doesn't really know what's going on. And um, we talked about the differences in the story between Samuel and Chronicles because they do cover a lot of the same events. And so the fact that it covers the same events and you've got these differences are these contradictions and why. And we talked about the fact that, you know, they're written for two different purposes. And Samuel and Kings, they tell us how Israel got into such a mess that the exile was necessary. And then Chronicles is saying, hey, but you still have a rich history. You still have a heritage to celebrate. And so they aren't two different stories from the perspective of their contradictory. It's two different perspectives. And anybody who's done any kind of family genealogy, you'll know there's things in your family history that you tell as kind of cautionary tales. Don't go the way of your great uncle Saul because he was a drunk and a mean old man. But, you know, you still need to remember the fact that he did some really awesome things, too, and that's why you're here. And so we can get it if we stop and kind of pull these stories into relatable scenarios, things that we might have lived through. Because I think one of the things we tend to do. And I've said this before, we make all these people in the Bible so holy, so special that we can't relate to them. Yeah. And, and yeah, that's, 
exactly right. We make them these these one-dimensional characters, these incorruptible heroes. And then when we find out that they did something bad, we think that that's a reason to, to dismantle our faith. And mm-hmm. we, we don't have any, uh, I don't want to say nuance, but we don't, we don't have any understanding that people are people. And mm-hmm. that it's separating the good things from the bad things and, and going, oh, the good things really did work to build God's kingdom and plan. And then they did some bad things, but God worked in spite of that. And that's why we need, that's why we need Jesus, (laughs) you know? Right. Well, and you know, and that's one of the really cool things too, when you realize that if this really is a book that tells us history that happened, that actually occurred, then it has to be a story about real people and real people have depths and dimensions. And if you want to use a Shrek analogy, they're like onions or parfaits, take your pick. But, you know, there, there's layers and we need to to realize that we can't affirm the historicity of the Bible while denying the humanity of the people it's talking about. So um, I wanted to look a little bit at what Chronicles does reveal and what what it does, uh, you know, the gaps that it kind of fills in, because Chronicles is a celebration of the success of Israel and the things that Israel did right. And so if you look at Chronicles, because we don't have all of the same events, you kind of have to look at some of the major events that are addressed and try to figure out uh, there is literally a chicken on my desk just <laughs> right now. Anyway, um, and, and we pick out these events that uh, allow us to kind of formulate a timeline and see where events do fall. So in uh, Chronicles, David conducts the census the plague hits. We talked about this. This happens at the end of Second Samuel. Uh, God stops the plague, and then David builds his altar, and this is where the altars, uh, where the cha- uh, sorry, the temple is going to be built, and that's in chapter twenty-one. Now, in chapter twenty-two, David begins assembling the um, the materials for the temple, and it says, then he calls for Solomon, his son, and um, hold on, I'm sorry, this is. Um, that's chapter 21 of Chronicles, not Samuel. Samuel doesn't give us this information. Chronicles does. So in chapter 22, David says this. Uh, the Bible says this about David. Verse 6, then he called for Solomon his son, and he charged him to build a house for the Lord, the God of Israel. David said to Solomon, my son, I have it in my heart to build a house to the name of God, the Lord my God. But the word of the Lord came to me, saying, you, shall have, you have shed much blood, waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name because you have shed so much blood before me on the earth. Behold, a son shall be born to you who shall be a man of rest. I will give him rest from all his surrounding enemies, for his name shall be Solomon, and I will give, him, I will give peace and quiet to Israel in his days. Verse 10, he shall build a house for my name, and he shall be my son, and I will be his father, and I will establish his royal throne in Israel forever. So, this language, if you stop and listen to it, it sounds very similar to what we find in 2 Samuel chapter 7, the, the Davidic covenant. In 2 Samuel, um, this prophetic word's given to David before he finds Mephibosheth. Remember, he sent somebody out to find the, the descendants of Saul. Uh, before the events with Bathsheba, before Amnon and Tamar, or Absalom, uh, the census, or any of that. So the Davidic covenant is spoken to David before these events occur. Now, in this account in Chronicles, it sounds as if David is retelling what occurred in 2 Samuel 7 to Solomon. And this is something that was told to to David before Solomon is born. 
and not only that, an offspring after you have shall be come from your body will build the temple. But God gave him the name for the son. The name of the son would be Solomon. Now, in 2 Samuel 12, 24, we're specifically told that David names his second son uh, with Bathsheba. David is the one who named Solomon. Most of the time in biblical accounts, the mother gives the name. And when the father gives the name, there usually is a notation that it is the father. So if David did name Solomon, after he's had this talk with God, where God says his name will be Solomon, then by naming the child this specific name, this is essentially an oath that this is going to be the son who is going to, to follow in David's footsteps. And, you know, you can see how Bathsheba would see that as a promise where David is partnering with God to determine who his successor would be. And when you look at Chronicles, it is roughly on the same point in the timeline. The ark is brought into Jerusalem. This is before the Ammonites and the Syrians are defeated and Rabbah is captured. Now, Chronicle tells you about Rabbah being captured. Rabbah is the city that was being warred against by Joab when David committed the sins with Bathsheba. So there's your same, you know, it's the same things. Now, Chronicles doesn't tell you about Bathsheba, but they will tell you about the victory. So there's a little difference in the story, but the same event. It's the same time. And the only difference is, is we don't have the names mentioned. So in 1 Chronicles 28.5, we also have this. And it says, And all my sons, for the Lord has given me many sons. This is David talking. He has chosen Solomon, my son, to sit on the throne of the kingdom of the Lord over Israel. So David says God himself has chosen Solomon. Then uh, in a speech to his officials, commanding them to support Solomon in building the temple as king. This is in 1 Chronicles uh, 28.10. David, uh, sorry, that's, there's a speech. That was in the speech. The chickens are distracting me. They're all around me. I'm surrounded. Anyway, so um, David was saying this about his sons and telling the people that God had chosen Solomon. And this is so that all of his officials notice all of his officials. This includes Joab, his general, and Abathar, his priest. They know Solomon is the chosen king before anything happens that we've talked about so far in 1 Kings. And then in 1 Chronicles 28.10, David reminds Solomon that he has been chosen for this task, and it comes with obligations. And there's a whole speech there that you can read. So I think there's a pretty good case to be made that David did promise Bathsheba that Solomon is the chosen child, that he is going to be the one who's going to rule. But we also had a second question that we were asking about 1 Kings chapter 1. And that is, why is it so important to Nathan the prophet that Solomon be the one who rules? Now, the, the easiest, most obvious explanation is Nathan's the prophet. He wants what God wants. And if God wants Solomon on the throne, therefore, it's important to Nathan the prophet. So, um, you know, I, that absolutely makes sense. I, I'm not going to dispute that, but I think it's kind of the lazy way out. And I think sometimes we have a tendency to just go for the easy answer when we're, we're reading the Bible. Uh, a lot of people will defend this by, well, the plain reading of the text. Okay, well, number one, there's no plain reading of the text. Let, let's just be, be honest about that. Uh, there's some things like thou shalt not steal. Okay, you can go with a plain reading of the text on that. 
But most of the time, if you just go with a quote unquote plain reading of the text, you're coming to it with your own personal bias and your own personal um, perspective on it. And that's going to color what you're reading in such a way that you've destroyed the plain reading. So to get a plain reading, you actually have to go back to context. And so the context comes from all the other verses that deal with this verse, that deal with these passages, the words, the concepts that you're looking at. So we have to go back to the David and Bathsheba story back in 2 Samuel. And I think everybody knows Nathan the prophet is a huge part of that story. Matter of fact, he's the one who speaks more than David and Bathsheba in that account. So we can't discount who he is within that narrative. And so after Nathan goes to David, he confronts him. Remember, he tells the story about the rich man who had the feast and he stole the the poor man's lamb and he served it up for dinner. And we talked about that at length. So we won't go over that again. If you want to go back to that, you can find it uh, on our past shows. But after Solomon is born, uh, remember Nathan goes away at the end of confronting David. He goes back to his house. After Solomon's born, he reemerges, and this is 2 Samuel 12, verses 24 and 25. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son, and he, David, called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him, speaking of the baby, and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. Now, the pronouns for he called are a little fuzzy. They could be referring to Nathan the prophet. They could be referring to God. We really, um, we really don't know. I, I tend to lean towards it's referring to Nathan uh, because of the last phrase where it says because of the Lord. It makes me think that Nathan named the prophet because of the Lord, so, or named the baby because of the Lord. And this would make Jedediah a divinely inspired name pronounced by the prophet, that the prophet actually gave Solomon his name. And in doing so, he's basically acting as what we might consider to be like a godfather. And, you know, he, he's invested in this child and in the child's well-being. And he wants this child to do well. And if you look at the name in Jedediah in Hebrew, what you're going to find is David's name is right in the middle of it. It, It's got the same letters as David's name. So even there, if the prophet is speaking this name that contains his father's name over this baby, we have a hint that this is the child that's going to follow in his father's footsteps. Why? Because just like David is beloved of God, Jedediah means beloved of Yah, which is short for Yahweh, of course. Okay, well, you just answered the question I was going to ask, so I'll I'll turn my mic back down. Okay. So, and now my my question from this is, is this supposed to remind us, you go back to Saul, go back to David, and when they are anointed king, they both have this moment with the prophet alone uh, and or with their families. It's not public. It's a private event where the prophet shows up, anoints the new king. And then only later is are, are David and Saul recognized publicly as king over Israel. So I, I kind of wonder if we're supposed to have a little mirror image going on here, a little parallelism between those private events when Saul and David's lives 
being echoed here with Solomon, the only difference being that Solomon's still a baby. So um, the other thing that helps us kind of round out the picture about why Nathan might be so invested is in 2 Samuel 5.14, and then we have almost the same verse again in 1 Chronicles 3.5 and 1 Chronicles 14.4, and there's a list of David's sons, and we learn that Solomon has three full brothers, so David and Bathsheba have more sons together, and there's uh, Shemua, Shobab, and Nathan. So typically in the Bible, um, when the mother names the child, she's naming a name that's significant. I mean, if you go back and look at Leah and Rachel's stories, you're going to see that very clearly. It, it comes through, um, you know, you, you can't miss the fact, the significance of the mother naming the child and how the mothers chose the name. And so it's interesting to think that Bathsheba would name one of her sons after Nathan the prophet. And I think that's a clue that Nathan the prophet really is someone important to her. And I don't think we should be surprised by this because remember, a prophet is somebody who has experienced the heart of God. There's someone who is joined with God in his concern, his wrath, his, his love, his compassion for, for the people that they are talking to. And they, they feel everything God's feeling for them. Uh, for the person that the message is for. And so Nathan obviously had this very visceral reaction to what happened to Bathsheba. I mean, remember that story he tells David, the, the drama in that moment where he goes through this heart-wrenching account where this guy has his, quote, daughter, his lamb, taken from him. And then da Nathan turns around and says, you're the man. So the fact that that Nathan had felt what God had felt for Bathsheba, you would kind of think that it makes sense that this would be an ongoing thing for Nathan to be invested in Bathsheba. I mean, that's not the sort of thing you just put behind you. And also then whenever he comes to talk to Bathsheba here in First Kings, one of his concerns was he wanted Bathsheba and Solomon to be alive. He was worried about their well-being. And so I think, you know, we need to pay attention to these little pointers that Nathan the prophet really did have a personal connection to these two people, not just David, but also to Bathsheba and Solomon and their well-being overall. And so we, I think we tend to forget that there's so much more to the stories than what's on the pages. Because the pages don't tell us about the everyday events. They don't tell us about the things that, you know, the conversations that might have happened as they passed in hallways or the number of times that Bathsheba says, hey, I've got an issue. Can I need some spiritual counsel? Well, who's she going to turn to? She's going to turn to the prophet. She's going to turn to the guy who, who helped her. And uh, that wouldn't have been uncommon. So, um, you know, we've got, got kind of these some major hints that this is more than just Nathan walking by and going, hey, David, you screwed up. And he really seems to see Bathsheba as significant in her own right. And she's not just a bit player or the means to an end for a story. So we'll get back to the text now that I've offered all my speculation and let everybody, you know, kind of you know, ponder it. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. I, but I do think I'm right or I wouldn't have shared it. 
So uh, we're in First Kings, still in chapter 1, verse 28. Then David answered, call Bathsheba to me. So she came into the king's presence and stood before the king. Verse 29, and the king swore, saying, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my soul out of every adversity. Verse 30, I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, saying, Solomon, your son, shall reign after me. He shall sit on my throne and in my place. Even so, I will do this day. So, um, again, some people have said that, you know, this is gaslighting, that David being the victim of gaslighting by Nathan to Bathsheba. I used to believe it. Uh, that's a chicken. <laughs> so, sorry. Um, real life here on the farm. Uh, anyway. On today's episode of Mrs. Farm. <laughs> I, not affiliated, right. but um, she's pretty funny. Um, that's kind of what your house is becoming. It really is. It's taking on a life of its own, and I'm just along for the ride. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, it, nothing. We won't go into that. That's a whole therapy session. So Yeah, we, <laughs> yeah we'll, we'll, we'll stay away from all of your, your animals and that stuff for now. Anyway, so. Absolutely. So this is so, not this is not uh, gaslighting of David by Bathsheba is what you're saying. I, I don't think so. I mean, I think by the time you weigh all the av- evidence, by the time you know all the passages and chronicles, and if you're going to affirm them as true, and the entire Bible is inspired by God, then in order to make that statement, you kind of have to uh, disregard First Chronicles as being irrelevant or being fraudulent, even. And I don't want to do that. Uh, it's not my favorite book of the Bible. Uh, I don't think it has the same drama. It doesn't have the same humanity as First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings. But God gave it to us for a reason. And then, on the the basis of what we've seen on the writer from the writer of Samuel itself, uh, he he does this thing we've noted before, where he withholds information right up to the point you need it. And we saw this with uh, Saul and the witch of Endor. We didn't know that Saul had actually exiled all the witches until the witch of Endor became an important character. We didn't know that Saul had done something awful to the Gibeonites until that became central to a story with David. So what he does over and over again, and there's more examples, I just didn't bother to look them up. Um, we have so many examples of where we don't get the information until we need it. And so if the writer decides to hold off and not give us the information on Solomon until this moment, it's actually in keeping with what's gone before. And so it shouldn't be a big surprise to us that he would choose to do this. Now, uh, picking up in verse 31, then Bathsheba bowed with her face to the ground and paid homage to the king and said, may my lord, the king, King David, live forever. Weird thing to say to a man on his deathbed, somebody you've just been talking about his final arrangements with, but it's a wholly appropriate thing to say to the king, and we're going to talk about why in just a minute. But picking up in verse 32, King David said, Call to me Zadok, the priest, Nathan, the prophet, Abinaniah, the son of Yehudiah, that they can come before the king. Notice he discusses the decision with his wife before he calls the men who can actually make it happen. I think that's a really interesting note. He tells Bathsheba what's going on. Nathan's there. Nathan's in the room. He could have just called for the other guys. 
he didn't have to call for Bathsheba first. So the fact that he actually brings her into the discussion first it is very telling about his change of heart and the way he views women at this point in time. David has made that turnaround. So verse 33, and the king said to them, take with you the servants of your Lord and have Solomon, my son, ride on my own mule and bring him down to Gion. Uh, now the writers already established that mules belong to the princes of Israel. Remember, Israel does not breed mules. That's against the Torah. You don't breed two different species of animals together, which is a totally correct thing to do because mules were not created by God. They're created by men. Um, they're perfectly wretched beast, in my opinion. But you could have a mule in Israel if you bought it or you captured it from someone who did breed mules. My daughter would, is going to beyond me for saying such th horrible things about mules. Everybody else in the family loves them. But if you remember, I said that First Kings also plays a big part in the writing of another book, and that book being Esther. And so this should call to mind what's said in Esther um, 6, and starting in verse 7. And Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let the royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to the king's most noble officials, and let them lead him to the house through the, city, through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. So basically, in Esther, it's okay. Haman advises the king to make the one he wants to honor king for the day. And here in First Kings, David is going to make Solomon king for life, but how do, we, how do we convey that? I take my three top officials, I have them put my son on my mule, my, my mount that I ride into battle, and I'm going to have him paraded through the city so that everyone can see this is the one I've chosen. And so you have that very close parallel, and, and Esther does pick up on Solomon's story over and over again and uses it, repurposes the ideas to convey a new truth. And so it's one of the fun things you get to see in the Bible whenever you start seeing these parallels play off each other. I'm just considering the uh, riding a mule into battle. I don't know that I've actually really thought about that. And They're uh, sure-footed. They're great jumpers. They've got better endurance than horses. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah, they're, this is the reason why here they're used for coyote hunts. Um, okay. Yeah, a lot, of, a lot of hunters will take a mule any day over a horse because they're just, they last longer. On, you know, you can ride them harder. It's just, they're a good animal uh, as far as like endurance. Again, not my favorite. But well, <laughs> you know, it's just, you know, we often hear about battle mules. Uh, right? You, know, you hear about the war horse, but not the... Uh... Not the battle mule. It just was an interesting, funny image to me, especially after well, and, watching so much gun smoke growing up. Well, you got to remember, too, uh, where we are in the breeding process, because when, by the time we start talking about war horses, we're talking about horses that have been specifically bred to be heavier boned animals to carry armor. Right. You have armored horses, the knights on them. Um, so totally different breed of horse than what you'd be looking at at this point in time in the ancient Near East. Fair enough. And yeah. so whenever you're comparing, I mean, it's apples and oranges 
Uh, most of our draft horses, a lot of people don't realize this, uh, you know, we think of draft horses like Clydesdales and Perchins and uh, um, other ones as being uh, being bred for pulling wagons. That's not what right. they were bred for. They were bred for those knights in shining armor because that stuff weighed a lot. In the in ancient Near East, you aren't going into battle with all that armor. You're you're right. going in. Right. So, yeah, totally. Yeah, I know. T- yeah. <laughs> Go ahead. No, it's kind of. No, no, I was just thinking about horses, and it's totally different thing. But on, on True Grit, when the you know Rooster Cogburn's given the Texas Ranger guff about uh, the the size of his horse, and I was having to explain mm-hmm. to Mickey that you don't want you actually the larger the horse, the less its endurance because they're they're having yes. to move a lot more weight around. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I guess that kind of makes sense. I just I hadn't think I hadn't considered mules as something you would ride into battle. I didn't know if you could get a mule to ride into a battle. <laughs> I thought they were smarter than that. Well, I mean, that, that's the problem with mules. Evidently, you've got to have a trainer who knows what they're doing. And, you know, I give mules a lot of, uh, a lot of flack because, I mean, one of the things about a mule is you can ride a horse or a donkey next to a barbed wire fence, and your leg might be a half inch from that barbed wire fence, but you'll never touch it. Right. A mule will walk down it and just rake your leg right across it until it's bloody. If there's a tree branch to go under, that mule's going to go under it and knock you off. They are super smart creatures. They they know how to outsmart most people. Right. Uh, they know how to outsmart me. And so, but once one is trained, then they actually are really excellent if you've got the right trainer. And that's okay. not me. <laughs> All right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do some looking to see if I can find some mules <laughs> outfitted for battle. That's got to be pretty funny. Yeah, that would be interesting. So um, it, now he, he's riding this mule into battle. Uh, sorry, in this parade. Um, Guillaume is, is where he's being taken to be anointed. Uh, it's only mentioned in the Bible six times. Uh, five of those times, it's identified as a spring outside of Jerusalem. In Chronicles, we learn that Hezekiah, who's going to be one of the kings we'll look at later, actually directs the waters of Gion, the spring, into Jerusalem. Manasseh also redirects the, uh, the springs into the city once he recognizes that the Lord was God. And this upheld, um, is upheld as one of the more noteworthy accomplishments of both of these kings along with restoring and removing the uh, restoring the worship of Yahweh and removing the idols from Israel. Now, um, where it gets really interesting to me is one of the later mentions. Um, actually, it's one of the first, sorry, uh, where it's named as one of the rivers of Eden coming out of the garden in Genesis 1 and 2. So please note that I'm not trying to make any kind of case for the location of Eden. If you want to talk about that, uh, answers uh, to giant questions, they've been discussing some of that. And um, Tim and Chris are doing a great job. But I think we need to look at the symbolism here, because a lot of times when we talk about the names of places in the Bible, it's to direct your mind to certain events and certain ideals. Not necessarily this is where it had to happen exactly. But you need to know the significance of what's happened in similarly named places. And so, you know, one of the themes in the Bible, is particularly the Old Testament, and is the search for sacred space. I mean, God created the earth and then he made the Garden of Eden. So you have the earth, which is good, 
But the place where humanity meets with God is this garden. It's where God walks with them. It's where he talks and, and shares um, insight and wisdom, presumably answers questions. He invites them to participate in the things that he's doing. Uh, we see that with Adam naming the animals. He presents humanity with gifts. He, he gives them good things in this sacred space. And so, uh, of course, we know about the fall. We know they're kicked out. The Garden of Eden is lost. But then... As you progress through the Bible and you have the selection of Abraham and Abraham being called by name after the whole Tower of Babel thing, being called by name, being promised the land of Canaan, what's going to happen in Canaan? This is where God is going to appear to his people again. This is where the temple is going to be built. This is where they're going to be able to join God once again in these feasts and they're going to be able to hear God's voice again. We're going to be able to see his presence. All of the things, well, not all of the things, but a lot of the things they lost in Eden are going to be restored on a lesser scale, but it's still going to happen. And so this, this quest for sacred space kind of becomes this, this ongoing repetitive theme that, of course, we see um, carried through into the New Testament, where the believer, where God indwells in the form of the Holy Spirit, where becomes the sacred space. It's not just a geographic spot on the map, but each person who says that the king of heaven rules in my heart and my life and is going to direct and guide my uh, my decisions, now we become sacred space expressing the manifestation of the kingdom on this earth in a whole new way. And But this begins with the nation of Israel, and they are a major step in this process of reclaiming sacred space building the temple, which is what Solomon's job is going to be, is another major step in building, uh, reclaiming the sacred space. And w- when we look at the temple and we look at the, the, the symbolism and the artwork contained, we're going to find that there is all of this imagery that once again points us back to Eden. We're going to have a lampstick that resembles the tree of uh, knowledge of good and evil. Uh, there's going to be more uh, plants. So there's going to be uh, the cherubim, things that we associate with Edom, Eden are going to be seen in the temple. And this is significant because the idea is to point you to that place, that time where you could personally connect with God. And um, so I think there's something significant to the fact that when Solomon is anointed king, whenever the, the the nation finds out this is going to be the one who leads them forward. He returns to a place that's named for a river in Eden. And I think that we're supposed to be reminded uh, of Jesus for a number of reasons. But I want to look at um, Matthew 21, 1 through 11. And this is going to be lengthy, but I think you're going to see the parallels. Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them, bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal, a beast of burden. The people threw palm branches at this point, and their clothing on the road, and they're shouting, Hosanna save us, please save us. Uh, Mark eleven twelve makes note that no one had ever sat on this cult. So Jesus isn't receiving his right to rule from another. He's actually 
saying it's his alone given by God. Um, and so you see the, the parallels there with the, the riding in on um, the horse, the colt. Uh, we got the donkey. Uh, the, the whole idea of coming from the outside of Jerusalem into the city and this victorious progression of the city that now you're going to take possession of. Jesus takes possession in a different way. There's not a, a physical throne for him to inhabit yet, but there is this, um, this is where he begins to establish his kingdom within the, the community of believers. So I don't want to get too deep into that, but I did want to point that out because I think it's hard not to see the parallels. And of course, we'll get more into that when we finally do make it to the New Testament. So verse 34, and let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet there anoint him king over Israel and blow the trumpet and say, long live King Solomon. So David institutes the, the ascension process. He's the one who actually says, this is what it looks like to go from a father-son rule. It's not from, you know, random people seemingly picked out of the crowd who get anointed in random places. It's going to happen this way. There's going to be a methodology that's going to be uh, uh, going to be fulfilled because this is the first time we do have that succession from father to son, and for the first time, this is the we have a king taking his place on the throne who's not been proven in battle yet. Saul and David. Remember when David was chosen. Uh, for king over Israel, they said, because you've let us out and let us in, you've taken us out to battle and you've brought us back in. Therefore, you should be king over us. <clears throat> Excuse me. And, you know, David and Saul were both anointed by priest and prophet. Uh, in their cases, the priest and prophet were one person. It was found in the person of Samuel. And now um, he, David's saying Solomon excuse me, Solomon should be anointed by the priest and the prophet. And so we have some similarities, but we also have a break because Solomon's rule is not about warfare. It's not about being able to beat the enemy. It's about being able to govern well in a time of peace. And if you pay attention to history, sometimes governing well during a time of peace is far more complicated than governing well during war. With war, you know exactly what to do. You take out the enemy. During peace, this is when all the nuances and all the little problems and the things that will cause big problems need to be addressed before they become big problems. So verse 40, and all the people went up after him playing on pipes, rejoicing with great joy. And so the earth was split by the noise. Uh, now, Alter says that the split by the noise, the earth being split is hyperbole. And it's to demonstrate that the, the massive support that Solomon had um, beyond uh, Adonia. Uh, House, who is our, one of our commentators, and Art Scroll, they're silent. They say absolutely nothing about this at all. Uh, so I was still a little more digging because, I mean, that's really interesting, the idea of the earth splitting because the people are um, rejoicing that much. And the word here can also mean burst. It can, you know, so this idea of just explosively breaking forth. I mean, don't you know that's when God rearranged the continent? It's got to oh. be what happened is he, he split the earth up. It's, I thought that happened in the days of Peleg. Well, he must so, have done it twice, you know. Oh, oh, okay. Okay. That, you know. I mean. 
<laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> I, I couldn't help myself. Okay, so I know you can't. This is this is why we have to watch ourselves. This is why we're in this together, so we don't go too far off the rails. Um, okay, so this word burst. Um, it's actually the same word that we find in Genesis seven eleven. This is with the flood that the the deep burst open. We find it again in Numbers sixteen thirty one when the ground split or burst open. That uh, you'll notice uh, that's an interesting story we talked about before. That's the the judgment of Korah and his sons whenever they get sent down to Sheol alive. Um, it can also mean to cleave or divide, like God divided the Red Sea. We find it used there. Um, so there is some, some, um, wow, I totally missed like, <laughs> Hey, let's back up. Let's go to, um, I, I lost my page. Um, well, uh, you lost a page. <laughs> no, I lost my, my place. Sorry. Um, uh, I was just seeing if I missed anything, uh, important. Uh, you know, go ahead and finish your point, then you can come back if there is anything. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking, but I had to find my point. Oh, um, fair enough. So, okay, but the uh, there's where we were going. So, Gion is the spring uh, where the procession began, but Gion actually means burst too. And so, you have uh, synonyms being used within this passage that there, there's this kind of this explosion and. I think that we're supposed to be picking up on this theme of this bursting forth, both in the name of Gion and and this idea that the earth burst open. And, you know, Solomon's reign is bursting. Um, it's forth. It's a new thing, kind of like a, a new shoot bursting out. And the earth is bursting with people's joy. And it's a pivotal moment because this is the moment when the Davidic dynasty is established. Yes, David had been on the throne up to this point, but the, um, the, the, the dynasty wasn't established. A dynasty doesn't begin until you have a son to succeed you on the throne. Before that, you're just a warlord. You might rule as king, but you don't become a real king until you have a familial succession. And so this is the moment that David's reign is fully established. And he is not just a, a warrior or a judge. He is actually, um, he is somebody who can establish security and pattern and structure upon the, um, on the, the, uh, the kingdom. And this is, like I said, this is the first time. Now, I do want to notice that uh, we, we have had moments before where Abimelech, and if you remember, Abimelech is the son of Gideon. And Abimelech had tried to take power from his father. His name actually means my father is king. And the people had tried to make Gideon their, their god. And then Samuel tried to make his sons the new judges over Israel. That doesn't work. Jonathan, who would have been Saul's obvious successor, he gets killed in battle. Um, Ishbosheth does take over after Saul dies for a short moment, but we, we talked about how that really wasn't a real reign because he was just Abner's puppet, and he gets killed by his own men. I mean, so he wasn't liked uh, very well. 
So this is the first time that power has been transferred from father to son with a blessing from the father, with the son fully cooperating with the father, and with the total acceptance of the people. So it's... Yeah. I just have to say, it's, it's probably not, yeah, it's not a very successful reign if your own people kill you. That's, the, that's not how to end a revolution. Well, and that's the thing. I mean, we, we don't realize how often the point is made that this is, is, this is significant. We are so used to the idea that kingship should go from father to son. That's just normal. Why is it normal? Because these are the stories we've heard. We've heard it happen. We think about King Solomon. We think of King David. We think about rulers and kings during the Middle Ages and you know all of the, the European history. It's the bloodline. We, we accept that as normal. Well, it wasn't always normal. It doesn't become normal until about this time in history with King David and Solomon. And this is really where you start to see it even more so in other surrounding cultures. It was going on some in Egypt. But, you know, you really need to look at the other ancient cultures' um, succession stories. Very rarely is it a smooth transition. Rome, oh my goodness, they didn't transfer uh, power from father to son. Uh, They had like a totally messed up system, which led to so much war, so much bloodshed. Uh, It's crazy. And, um, And, you know, and I think you can see a pattern here because the pattern is, a son who ascends to power with the father's blessing. Well, I mean, good grief. We're seeing some foreshadowing. Jesus ascends to power with his father's blessing. God bursts the heavens, sends the, the dove down to say, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Um, it's a son who's going to carry out his father's vision for the kingdom by creating a place where humanity can meet with God once again. I mean, can we can we talk about how that is essentially the gospel right there? But the son who came first, the one who first tried to take over power, which with David, that's Absalom. What happens to him? He's overcome by his vanity. He's overcome with the sense of I'm better and smarter and I make better judgment than my father. I'm more righteous than my father. I'm more holy than my father. And we talked about how that mirrors the same language we find in Ezekiel and Isaiah. And so, you know, the, the, there's issues within the father-son succession that the Bible presents to us that happen when it's out of line, when the son's not cooperative, when it's not the chosen son. It can only happen with the son who is beloved, the one who is beloved of God, the one who is not only David, but also Jedediah. And so the um, we can also look back at David's succession story. And we've got Ad- Adonia, who's David's second son, trying to grab power. He lacks the charisma. He doesn't have that same pat a punch, but he doesn't have the same vision of his, as his father. And it was all about for him, what could he gain from that position? And what does he want to get from that position? We're going to find out later. What he wants from that position is David's wife. He wants to take the woman that had served David, wasn't his wife, sorry, the woman who had served David in his old age to keep him warm, the one that had been brought to David to comfort him. He wants to get out, be out of line with 
what was proper in a father-son relationship in regards to women. So you see both that that fall of Ezekiel that's presented as Ezekiel and Isaiah of uh, Satan, but then you also have echoes of Genesis six in Adonia. So um, these sons are rejected. They're not proper represent representatives of the father, and so you can almost see a microcosm of all of history within the story of. Uh, David and Solomon, because when we, we can look back to Genesis, we can look into the prophets writing, but we can also see Jesus with the full blessing of the Father who actively works to fulfill his Father's vision for the earth. And the rebellious sons, uh, you know, they're the ones who are going to be defeated and removed, which is exactly what Solomon does. So um, I also think we see some foreshadowing in Adonia of uh, what will happen of Israel. Some will fall into to idolatry. Others will stay faithful. Um, they will observe the feast and they'll make sacrifice, sacrifices in the temple and they'll proclaim that the Lord is God, but they fail to grasp God's vision for Israel. And so God did not um, appoint Israel as his chosen nation as somebody who could say, this is what's in it for us. This is what I'm going to take for myself. He chose them because they were supposed to be actively presenting a vision, his vision, God's vision to all of the earths to invite others to participate. And so when Adonia did not do this, when he starts to exclude people by not inviting everyone to his feast, whenever he goes to a place where it's possibly idolatry is actually actively being uh, carried out, and he is not even focused on his father's vision for the kingdom. He's not part of collecting the, the um, materials for building the temple. So you, you have a little bit of foreshadowing of what's going to happen with Israel here um, in him. And it's not until the, the, the chosen son returns in the form of Jesus that we began to see Israel return to its true purpose. And that's when all of humanity is reunited with the father. And so, um, but I did, evidently I got some pages out of order and I don't want to skip this um, because when Solomon is appointed or anointed uh, or whenever, sorry, whenever David's giving the instructions on how to anoint uh, Solomon with Benaniah, and with uh, Zadok, uh, Benaniah is the only one that says, amen, may the Lord, the God of my Lord and the king say so, as the Lord has been with my Lord, the king, even so may he be with Solomon and make his throne greater than the throne of my Lord, King David. Now the rabbis claim that the reason why Benaniah is the only one who speaks up is because he is the head of the Sanhedrin. Now we talked about how the Sanhedrin probably doesn't even exist at this point in time. Um, because there's, you know, this is happening centuries before we have any mention of them, but, um, it, it's probably an attempt to hyper-spiritualize Benaniah's position because Benaniah is going to become one of the high-ranking officials in Solomon's court. He's going to be one of Solomon's biggest supporters. And I think it's important to remember Benaniah is one of the mighty men who killed a, the Egyptian giant. He is the one in the list of my, David's mighty men 
who is recorded as killing the only giant we have identified as being specifically um, Egyptian. So the people who attend the anointing are Nathan, Benaniah, Zadok, the royal guard. We're told that they're there. They take Solomon on the mule. They go to Gion. Uh, Zadok takes a horn of oil from the tent. We're not told where this tent is. Uh, he anoints Solomon, and there, the shofar is sounded, and the people shout, Long live King Solomon. Now, the tent is probably where the Ark of the Covenant was housed. Um, there's one tradition that this is the oil that Moses himself made to anoint the temple or the tabernacle, and that all of the kings who had a prosperous reign were anointed with specific oil. Uh, any king whose reign was uh, doomed to fail, they were anointed with a different kind of oil, uh, like Saul, because Saul wasn't anointed from a horn. He was anointed from a flask. Um, so uh, as they're doing this, Adoniah, you may have forgotten, he, he's throwing a feast. And Joab and Abathar are busy eating with this kid who decided that he could you know, take the kingdom over from his father. And as they're finishing eating, this is verse 41, Joab hears the sound of the trumpet, and he says, what, what does the uproar in the city mean? So Joab, you know, he's a soldier. He's always a soldier. That's been his character throughout. He's the only one who immediately realizes something's off, something's up. We need to uh, figure out what's going on, because the shofar has traditionally been Joab's way of summoning the troops to battle. Whenever we find the shofar, many times it's Joab, and he's the one who goes, oh, guys, there's a problem. So verse 42, while he was still speaking, behold, Jonathan, the son of Abathar, the priest came, and Adoniah said, come in, for you are a worthy man, and bring good news. Now, I can't help but think of Adoniah, I was expecting to hear that David is dead. And that now he can rule in earnest. Uh, we've encountered jo Jonathan, son of Abathar, before. He is um, the son of Abathar the priest. And he's the one who brought the news to Nathan after, um, uh, sorry, brought the news to David when Absalom had invaded Jerusalem, when Hushai had misdirected Absalom and had managed to buy David some more time. It's Jonathan who said, hey, here's what's going on. Here's the plan. And if you notice, Adonia's reasons for, for welcoming Jonathan are the same reason that David um, greeted uh, Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, when he brought the news of uh, Absalom's death. That's in 2 Samuel 18. You're a good man. You're going to bring good news. And verse 43, Jonathan answered Adonia, no, for our Lord King the David has made Solomon the king. So Jonathan recounts the people who are a part of the anointing, uh, Zadok, Nathan, Benaniah, and David's personal guard. Um, he recounts the ride on the mule and that the people are, you know, celebrating. And he says, Solomon sits on the royal throne. Moreover, the king's servants came to congratulate our Lord, King David, saying, may your God make the name of Solomon more famous than yours and make his throne greater than your throne. And the king himself bowed on the bed. So if the names of those involved in the anointing wasn't impressive enough, 
Jonathan really drives the point home. The people congratulated David, praying that God would make Jonathan, Solomon's role even better than David's. And then David himself bows to his son. He, he can't even get off his bed, but from his bed, he bows to his son. And so unlike Saul, if you remember, Saul was terribly jealous of Jonathan's popularity with the people. David actually celebrates it. David's able to celebrate the success and the popularity of his own son. And he did not even consider it the slightest shame or humiliation to bow before his son. Instead, he was delighted by their enthusiastic, um, uh, enthusiastic reception of his son. And we should note that Solomon is on the throne even while David is alive. And so for a short amount of time, Israel actually has two kings on the throne ruling at the same time with the same amount of power and authority, a father and son. Now, we're going to talk a little bit about that um, next week because I think it's probably a good place to, to uh, put a semicolon. And we're going to get a little bit, not too much, but into Psalm uh, 110. And we're going to talk about um, a little bit about why it's important that we have David and Saul ruling at the same time, alive and both being king at the same time. I think our listeners are probably already picking up on why that's important. Sure. And how that uh, is some really great foreshadowing and some explanation. And it actually um, kind of debunks a more popular teaching out there uh, about Jesus and how God relate to each other. So. Anyhow, uh, I think that's good. Yeah, no, it seems like a good place to, to put a break. Everyone, thanks for joining us, um, and uh, we will see you next week. And in the meantime, hit us up on Raven Creek SC uh, on the social media and ravencreeksc.com for the website, and uh, be part of the conversation. Thanks. We'll see you. Bye. Bye. Faith and Other Oddities podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.